0: The following podcast of Scene Profiles is brought to you commercial-free by The L.A. Jazz Scene. L.A.'s only jazz paper celebrates its 25th year as Los Angeles' leading publication in the world of jazz. Pick up one at your favorite jazz club or visit us online at lajazzscene.net.
1: The J.W. Marriott in Ritz-Carlton in L.A. Live, which is hosting the 25th year anniversary of the L.A. Jazz Scene on Sunday, May 19th. This star-studded event is going to feature some of the greatest jazz players in Los Angeles. For tickets, call 818-584-6831.
0: No Vacancy Entertainment, Los Angeles' leader in professional entertainment. Don't have a party? Have an event with No Vacancy Entertainment. Visit us online at NoVacancyEntertainment.com.
1: Welcome to Scene Profiles, a podcast that interviews the best and brightest in Los Angeles jazz and also provides a general insight into the Los Angeles jazz scene. I'm Dave Damiani, your guest host today, filling in for Lyman Medeiros, who's out on the road in Palm Beach, Florida with Steve Tyrell. I am very excited to have my special guest host here today, Ms. Myrna Daniels from the LA Jazz Scene. How are you doing, Myrna?
0: I'm doing fine Dave glad to be here
1: so glad to be here and i um, so glad to be getting ready to celebrate the 25th year anniversary of the LA Jazz scene
0: Oh we're just thrilled we're thrilled thrilled that we've made it 25 years and we're ready to start another 25
1: well so excited to talk about the paper and um, introduce our special guest today I am so nervous because we have a radio professional here today and um, movie producer And writer, television writer, Doug McIntyre with KABC 790 AM Radio, and along with being a columnist for the LA Daily News, Doug and his wife Penny Pizer have also produced and directed an amazing feature-length documentary on Jack Sheldon called Trying to Get Good, a must-see for any jazz musician, and has written numerous things for television, including Married with Children and Full House and so many other things, and a PBS uh, show called Liberty Kids, Please welcome to the studio, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Doug McIntyre.
2: Hey, Dave. Hey, Myrna. How are you? I'm just fine. Just 25 fine. years of L.A. jazz scene, and Dave and I have been talking about doing this podcast for 26 years. <laughs> <laughs> we were actually talking about doing this podcast before there was podcasting.
0: <laughs> well, we have to start somewhere.
2: Exactly. you got to get your bids in early.
1: Thanks so much for coming on, Doug. I mean, it's just awesome to have you here. It's so exciting. And um, things are going great for you in the morning there at KABC. Uh, how's the
2: show? Well, that's for you to decide. It's awful early. This morning was one of those uh, every uh, morning show host nightmare. Because we're on the air at 5 a.m. Uh, every day. And that means the alarm clock goes up at 3.20. And there's a, the, the, the show really starts at 3.20 when I stumble out of bed, try not to hit the cat. but I hit the <laughs> on button for the coffee pot and the shower. It's a whole routine. This morning... Mm-hmm. I hit the snooze alarm, which was a terrible mistake. So at, uh, at, at 4.38 instead of 3.20, oh the producer God. of the show called and said, you're not here, are you? Going, go, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but I did set a record from the West San Fernando Valley to South of La, C- La Cienega, South of Washington in 18 minutes flat. Wow. Uh, so that's why my hair looks like I stuck a, an appendage in an electrical outlet.
1: That's so funny. Oh, uh, wow.
2: Well, but it does happen. So it's a little bit of a, a balancing act. Well, you don't have that problem now. I mean, you do the podcast. You can do that in your underwear. It's great. In fact, it, you won't mind if I take this. <laughs> no, go ahead.
1: Put on your underwear. That's <laughs> okay. what we were hoping for, actually. Okay. Um, I'm going to give you a little history about uh, Doug McIntyre. I mean, a little L.A. history. I used to be a bartender at Charlie O's. And that was used, my... to and used to be a customer. And you um, used to be a customer. And... Doug has been such a supporter of the great American songbook and jazz in LA. We started to talk and I used to call into the program on Red Eye Radio, which was the best. And um Doug discovered, well, maybe not discovered but brought so many artists to to attention of a lot of Los Angeles people. He loved John Pizzarelli, um Jack Sheldon, of course, the legend, and Patrick Toozellino. Remember Pat Toozellino?
2: Sure, yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of great uh, people who uh Local performers uh, in in Southern California, in Los Angeles, uh, and then some people actually went on and had huge careers. I had Michael Bublé on the show about seven months before his record debuted. Wow! When uh, when nobody really knew who he was, I, I had a friend who worked for one of Electro Atlantic Records in New York, and he sent me an advanced copy. It was like an internal uh, uh, pressing of the CD that they were circulating. I said, "Well, this kid's great." And we had him on and it was funny because uh then he went a couple months later played at the hollywood roosevelt hotel uh with a seating capacity of 160 and i remember sitting backstage with him and said well you're never going to do this again uh (laughs) and it was just next time it was at the greek and then it was the bowl and then it was you know uh, stadiums uh but but i really do love uh when we were doing red-eye radio which was five hours of late night We started at midnight and went to five in the morning. And when we called it Red Eye originally, we thought, well, we'll use Come Fly With Me as the theme, it'll be sort of like a late night. But we turned out Red Eye was really related to that the audience was either drunk or stoned. Because <laughs> you know when you're on about 20 minutes after the bars close at two in the morning, the calls got so much more entertaining. Uh, but it was wonderful because we had a piano, we had a nice Yamaha upright in the studio and people would come in And we'd have little jam sessions. We had wonderful people. Keely Smith for an hour. uh, Artie Shaw for three hours, which was an incredible experience. And then just wonderful performers who weren't necessarily famous names, but just have so much jazz history. Uh, Jimmy Madden, uh, who was just such a character in his zoot suit with his watch fob. uh, And uh, Spanky Wilson. And just wonderful people that would come in. And and some really giants of... uh, uh, giants of American Music Would come in and spa- spend time with us And it was a wonderful experience It was it was really like uh, I mean I had the best seat in the house Because I can't play a note of anything Or sing a note of anything so uh, I, But I learned almost everything I know about music From doing that show And getting to talk to all these Giants
1: It's so interesting
0: I think one of the neatest things Was when you gave them so much time um, Someone like uh, Frank Sinatra's pianist who a lot of people don't know him, but you gave him enough time to talk about his history and working with Sinatra. Uh, I remember some of those because it was so leisurely. I mean, what a privilege to do that.
2: Well, Bill Miller, uh, thanks, Myrna. And Bill Miller lived in Burbank and uh, was with Frank from 1951 until the end. And there was a couple of year hiatus when they had had some dust up. But and during that period that bill wasn't with sinatra frank dropped one for my baby from the from the band book because he would not do the song with another piano player it didn't matter how good the piano player was and they were all great
1: he couldn't play that he couldn't play that he style. just wouldn't do it yeah
2: <clears> he just wouldn't do it with another piano player but then they patched it up they put it back in the band book but as bill got older and his eyeglasses got thicker uh, we used to take turns driving him places because nobody thought it was a good idea for mm-hmm. Bill to be behind the wheel of a car. And it was uh, some of those trips around town were the greatest because he would tell these fantastic stories. Uh, and and Bill, he spoke the way he played. He was a minimalist. Uh, he made Count Basie sound like Art Tatum. I mean, he <laughs> he was really a minimalist, and that's what made him such a fabulous accompanist. Because he really stayed out of the way. He created a he created an atmosphere, he created a a mood and a and a melody, but he stayed out of the way of the vocalist, which of course was the greatest vocalist who ever lived. So it's a good one to stay out of the way of. But when you you'd get them to tell stories uh he needed a little lubricant to get that going and when he came in to do red eye radio i knew what bill's brand was
1: what was Uh, his brand by the way?
2: he liked uh and he liked vodka he liked uh, vodka tonics so i had a little cooler with some ice and a bottle of vodka and some some mixer and a couple of lemon uh uh, uh, lemons he didn't like limes he liked lemons. so we sliced them up i said bill would you like a little and he said no i said well maybe a little one (laughs) 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 and then a couple of drinks into it he was off to the races and of course he had this incredible history uh, LA history in particular because he goes back to the 1930s and he was in Charlie Burnett's band for instance he was playing on Cherokee, he played in Charlie Burnett's band when the Palomar fire took place Wow! and told the story about between sets there was a place called Smitty's across the street from the Palomar and the band ran over there so they could drink in private and uh, someone said, "Hey, the Palomar's on fire!" Now they were their, their their instruments were in there, and they were supposed to go back for a second set. And the Palomar burned to the to the ground, 1939, and burned up all their instruments. And the Barnett band was a slave, really, to the Basie band, and they were they were out on the road. Now they had nothing; they had no instruments, and they had no arrangements. All their charts burned up. Uh, And he said they rented instruments, uh, and Basie lent him his uh, copies of his band books so they could go back on the road. But uh, Bill had tons of stories, just fantastic pieces of music history.
1: Now, now, Doug, did you meet these guys hanging out on Riverside Drive at the Money Tree? Like, how did this all? How did you bump in? How did you even meet these guys out here?
2: Well, I think originally it was the Money Tree, really, which was this fantastic. Uh, place on Riverside Drive in Toluca Lake that was ultimately dismantled piece by piece by idiot owners. <laughs> no joke. But it was a, it was a musicians' hang. It was a kind of place where you know Tony Bennett would stop in when he was over at Warner Brothers, or uh, you'd see Sarah Vaughn would come in, and uh, Liza Minnelli stopped in with Michael Feinstein to see Paige Cavanaugh and would sit at the piano and do four songs. In fact, sang better at the money tree than I ever heard Liza Minnelli sing on stage because she didn't make everything a showstopper and, and belt everything out. She sang proportionally and it was wonderful. So there were a lot of wonderful people who were there And the, the night of Sinatra's 80th birthday. uh, They taped the special at the shrine, but one by one later that night, there's just guys in tuxedos one after another showing up and it was the entire Sinatra band showed up. Uh, And then one by one, they drift out to the parking lot and come in with a, with a trombone or a trumpet or a saxophone or a clarinet or something. and there's just this spontaneous jam session with these fantastic session players uh, was taking place in front of your eyes in this little uh, hole in the wall. It was just an amazing place uh,
0: at one point, um there was also Alphonse's right down the street. so it, you know it was you could just go from those two and then maybe a little bit further over to Dante's
2: well, you know, I miss Dante's Myrna because, I didn't move to L.A. from New York until 85, and uh, late 85, and that's right around the time that Dante's was going away, and uh, The China Trader, and all these little kind of places that had wonderful music, uh, wonderful live music, so I missed that, but The Tree... Uh, the money tree really what became the default place, and then Charlie O's later on really filled mm-hmm. that bill, certainly for the San Fernando Valley. That you knew that if you stopped into Charlie O's, you were going to have a really good booked band, and then you were going to have probably a half a dozen great players who were in the audience and uh, could, you know, with n- not much coaxing, could be uh, talked into sitting in.
1: There's just not a re- another place like that really right now where you can just go and hang at the bar and hear. A gr- I mean, there there are a few, but. Nothing like Charlie's we could just go and hang at the bar and see an amazing band with an out on top of you about a cover charge and that on top of you about you know it just was just a bar that had music
2: That's right no it's 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 a lost uh, it's a lost piece of LA history and you know there were so many there was Shelley's manhole and the list is endless of places we used to have uh, and place where we could sit at the sit at the counter and and have stories told uh, sit with to sit with Alveola Viola at uh, between sets was I mean, you know, you, you'd pay huge money for that. Those but, were memorable nights; they really were.
0: I remember when you interviewed Al Viola on the uh, on, on Red Eye, uh, yeah, oh, and, and Buddy Hackett wow. called in. What, with, a, what hey, a, Al!
2: Remember the night in Tokyo, and Al didn't want to uh, go any further with that story. <laughs> yeah. I, I got to tell you this story because it's a podcast, and so you can use adult language. Here, absolutely, can't we? absolutely. Bill Miller in the car coming back from some event somewhere at Mateo's or something. I'm driving it back to Burbank and he's had a few. So I thought I'd try it and I said, so Bill, what was Jack Kennedy like? Because you remember when Bill was with Sinatra in the the early, 1960, 61, 62, at the peak of, you know, the biggest star in the world and the whole world was shown. I mean, Cole Porter's in the audience and there's, you know, Noel Coward and there's... uh, So... Jack Kennedy was hanging around a lot with Sinatra prior to the presidency. He was the junior senator from Massachusetts. So Bill says, and this is our verbatim quote, he says, well, I didn't know who the fuck he was. He goes, well, I knew who the fuck he was, but I didn't know who the fuck he was. (laughs) Because he was just another guy. He was another guy that was hanging around. You know, with Peter Lawford and everybody else, the whole world was hanging around at that time. But but those are the kind of stories that you're not going to get... uh, in the sanitized uh, version of interviews, but you would get at the money tree or you would get uh, in any of the great clubs sitting at the bar talking to these incredible uh, players. And, and that's really how I fell in love with Jack Sheldon was, was, uh, was not from the Merv Griffin show because I never saw the Merv Griffin show. Me I, neither. I, I never watched it. Those are during my booze years and at that time of night I was out. Uh, but uh, uh, hearing Jack at the money tree... Uh, actually, the first time I remember hearing Jack Sheldon was on Sunset Boulevard listening uh, to uh, K Jazz. And um, I, I, they played the cut. They played a cut from Jack Sheldon Sings. And I made the left into the parking lot. I was right in front of Tower Records on Sunset when Tower Records was down there by Wolfgang Puck's place. And I made an illegal left turn acro- across the double yellow lines into the parking lot of Tower Records, and went and bought the Jack Sheldon sings CD. And I was in. And then when I found out he was playing at the Money Tree, that's what drew me to the Money Tree. And then I never left. I never left until the Money Tree left.
1: I remember when I met my wife. It was around 2000. We, we were, you know, I was just learning this music. And, we, and she says, "You got to know about Jack Sheldon." She kind of turned me on to him. She used to be a waitress at the Money Tree uh-huh. years ago. And we went and saw him at the old Catalina with his big band. Uh Uh-huh. And I just was blown away. From that point forward, I knew that this is what I wanted to do, and I knew that this guy, one of a kind, and I became friends with Ross Tompkins through Marty. Another
2: genius and, uh, and irreplaceable. Uh, a musical presence.
1: I mean, who is he is the funny... There's nobody that has an act like Jack Sheldon in the world today.
2: No, well, that's that's why Penny and I, my wife and I, Penny Pizer, we decided to make a, a documentary of Jack's life called Trying to Get Good, The Jazz Odyssey of Jack Sheldon that is available on DVD at Amazon.com. I have and a copy,
1: and it's fantastic.
2: Buy in bulk. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so... Uh, we went to see Jack after after year, many, many, I mean, countless n- nights spent in his company uh, with Jack in performance. We're, we were coming back from the Sweet and Hot Jazz Festival, which was down at the L.A. Uh, Marriott, at the Airport Marriott. And he was playing with the quartet in the Hangover Lounge, which was the small room. And he'd play with the big band the next day in the big room. But this was with the quartet up in a very, uh, actually, cartoonishly high stage. You actually got a neck cramp looking up. But the room was packed, and it was a particularly great night because Jack's comedy was always a high-wire act. It could go south on you real fast, and the audience could boo and hiss, and they did, frequently. But the reason Jack could take those chances were twofold. One, he had the comedy balls to do so. He worked with Lenny Bruce. He wasn't he he was fearless when he was as fearless with comedy as he is with music. And the other reason he could do it was he had the trumpet. And if he lost the audience with the joke, he could instantly have them back in the palm of his hand with the trumpet, which is we asked Billy Crystal about this, and Billy Crystal said every comic wishes he could play the trumpet or do something. Because when you take those chances there's a chance you'll fail, but he would always be able to save it because he could just put that trumpet to his lips and just own any audience because he was so good. But we were driving back that night, and I mentioned it to, to Penny. I said, boy, w- somebody's got to capture this before we lose it because it's irreplaceable, uh, it's irreplaceable American history in terms of the music of America, but it's specifically irreplaceable West Coast and L.A. history. And, uh, and within a couple of weeks, literally, we said, well, we'll be the people to do it. I had been a TV writer-producer for years, and my wife had been on a set for 30 years as an actress and a writer. So we said, well, let's just do it. And we started shooting. Uh, we bought a camera and just started shooting. And, and uh, it took us about six years to finish the film. And, and in some ways, it was great that it took that long because a lot of material revealed itself deep into the process that wouldn't have been available if we had done it rapidly, if we had done it in a year and just finished the film. There was a lot of stuff that helped shape the movie and made it what it is that actually came later on.
1: You know what? I learned so much from that documentary about Jack. I mean, I knew some of the stuff. I knew about, you know, about the... The, the school, what is it, the schoolhouse rocks and right. stuff? But I didn't know all the stuff about him being a, like actually having a television series, and that was just yeah. so so interesting to learn. Well,
2: it's it's utterly fascinating, and it and it's a tribute to a unique skill set that uh, very few people have had. But Jack is as a trumpet player is one of the great trumpet players in the world. He's one of the handful of trumpet players that has a signature sound that people can recognize in a few notes. Uh, and, and and is held in the highest regard by his peers. And then, and vocalists who would want him, the people like Peggy Lee and and so many others, uh, Rosie Clooney, so many others that would want, Julie London, who would want him to just play on their sessions with no score in front of them. Uh, which is, I just got a copy, there's a Nina Simone record, I don't remember the title, Jack's on one cut with it with Nina Simone and it is so it just jumps off that record it's so brilliant. But so as a trumpet player he's in in a rarefied air of signature players. Then as a vocalist he has a unique and distinct sound that is as melodic and listenable as anybody's voice ever has been. I put
1: him in the top five jazz vocalists of all time. That's how much I respect his singing. Well,
2: Tierney Sutton, who's uh, about as good a jazz vocalist (laughs) as you could hope to to have, would agree with you. She thinks that Jack is one of the great, really great jazz singers. Uh, Not necessarily a pure vocalist by any stretch of the imagination. Jack would not make a claim to that. He said, a lot of times I sound like a chicken squawking up there. But what he does have is a distinctive, and rhythmic, and unique sound. That uh, you know, I, I have a personal, uh, uh, I have a personal, uh, a tripwire for bad vocalists is when somebody says that they have an authentic voice, because authentic usually means they can't sing. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people have authentic voices that can't sing a note. Jack has a great voice but it is an authentic American voice as well, because it's a, it's the sound of jazz and blues, uh, and he's a wonderful singer. And then the third uh, threat, the third tool in the toolbox is, he is a brilliant, a brilliant spontaneous comic. And not just good, he's brilliant. He's got a brilliant comic mind, and uh, if you could just document the the... Thousands of funny and outrageous things that Jack says in the course of a, of a week. You could have a, a brilliant comedy career. I remember sitting at the money tree as Jack came through the the parking lot door for the gig, carrying his trumpet case. And there was a couple sitting at the first booth, and the woman recognized immediately said, "You're Jack Sheldon, aren't you?" And he said, "Yeah." He said, you know, 25 years ago, you asked me out on a date. And Jack says, so how about it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was just, it just, it's just a throwaway, a little throwaway, but, but, but constantly a stream. He thinks funny. He thinks in terms of funny. And, and he's a throwback to that period in American music when jazz and comedy were interchangeable. And and they went hand in hand. Louis Armstrong, who's really the the godfather of American music and certainly jazz, was a was an entertainer. He was a funny, ribald, and 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 wildly uh, risky uh, comic performer. In addition to his brilliant music, and Jack comes right out of that tradition. And you know, back when, when Jack was cutting his teeth. All of you know all of the nightclub acts. The comics had bands. Lenny had a band, and and that's why Jack and Joe Maney were working with Lenny Bruce. They would go on the road with him. So they they, they the comedy and jazz went hand in hand. And and I personally believe that part of the reason that jazz has fallen into such uh, disrepute with the popular audience is that far too many jazz performers take themselves. Way too seriously.
1: Way too seriously. It's, they, mu- it's music for musicians only. It's it's become a joke.
2: Well, they treat the audience in many cases as if the audience is an imposition, as if the audience... Uh, you know, I, I call it the Miles Davis syndrome, uh, that that the uh, real or apocryphal stories of Miles playing with his back to the audience. Well, if you're going to have that attitude, you damn well better be able to play like Miles Davis. Exactly. And, and But there's no excuse for it. There's no excuse for on a Friday or Saturday night in a nightclub it's not a church and it's not a classroom it's a nightclub and people worked hard and they're paying good money you could smile you could uh, tell a story you could make people you know if you're, you don't have to be a master comic but you don't have to be grim and a lot of performers pr- present a grim uh, appearance to the audience and it's a turnoff.
1: A lot of these guys forget that, that Count Basie used to play and Duke Ellington used to play high school dances when they could, if they had to for the gig. Yeah. The, the, and,
2: and that's why I am devoted to the performers who uh, are, are uncompromising musically, but have some smile in their life. And will share that with the audience.
1: Hey, let's take a quick a break here and play a track. I want I brought some Jack Sheldon Ross Tompkins duets. And we'll play one real fast. We'll take a quick break and we'll come right back and and talk about it.
2: Okay, great.
3: I hear music when I look at you A beautiful theme of every dream I ever knew Down deep in my heart I feel it play I hear it start Then fade away I hear music when I touch your hand a beautiful melody from some enchanted land down deep in my heart I hear it say this is the day I alone have heard this lovely strain I alone have heard this glad refrain must it be forever inside of me why can't I let it go Why can't I let you know Why can't I let you know The song my heart would sing A beautiful rhapsody Of love and youth and spring The music is sweet The words are true The song is you alone have heard this lovely strain I alone have heard this glad refrain. Must it be forever inside of me? Why can't I let it go? Why can't I let you know? Why can't I let you know the song my heart would sing? A beautiful rhapsody of love and youth and spring. The music is sweet. The words are true. The song is
1: That's Jack Sheldon on a record called Class Act with Ross Tompkins. What an amazing recording.
0: I have a question for you, Doug. Did you ever go to one of those gatherings that all the trumpet players in town would show up for somebody's birthday, like maybe you on Racy? Or... Well,
2: shortly after Jack had his uh, had his stroke a couple years ago now, uh, Yuan organized a trumpet hang at Jack's house that was... Remarkable! I actually taped it, uh, both for video and audio. One of these days, I'll get around to uh, uh, to editing this. But uh, he had about 18 trumpet players in Jack's driveway, uh, including Arturo Sandoval and you know all the monsters, Rick Baptiste and Wayne Bergeron. You know all of the they just. I think
1: they, I saw this on Facebook. Yeah, just yeah. an
2: amazing gathering of uh, of giants, and uh, it was actually very funny. They had they had written charts. Which was uh, very sweet. They did uh, the Shadow of Your Smile, and they had a couple of uh, fugues, uh, and then played Green Dolphin Street. Uh, But what was uh, so great? People were dashing out of the cars to get there. And so, does anybody have a music stand? Well, everybody had a music stand. There were like fifty music stands for eighteen people. But that's that's a little local event that you're not going to see in Kansas. This city. As you all know, and Myrna, you know, covering the L.A. jazz scene. This city is populated with the greatest players in the world because of the studio. Absolutely. the studio scene in L.A. Uh, employs uh, and and historically employed, especially for the older generation, the finest musicians. Where they could play anything when that red light was on, they could play anything. You got classical, you got a country. What do you got? If it's on the paper, they can do it and uh and the trumpet hang is uh, was a tradition that was just an amazing event where the guys would show up in Yuan Racy's driveway the great trumpet uh, teacher and first chair trumpet at uh, MGM for 30 years uh, and just uh, celebrate his life by playing Happy Birthday in his driveway. I mean, you, you know, people, headliners, Doc Severinsen, these just giants <laughs> are in the driveway uh, playing a trumpet, and the neighbors must have wondered what the hell's going on, but uh, it was a sign of love and respect.
1: It's beautiful. It is a beautiful story. I, I saw it on Facebook, a couple guys I know that were there, and it's just so awesome. There's pictures of all these guys. It's just so neat
2: yeah it really is and it's uh you know it's a tribute from peers to a master uh that's really what it is uh but uh you know i, I on the 25th anniversary of la jazz scene so we have myrna here too uh, how important la jazz scene has been uh to the music community not just the musicians for the obvious reasons because uh myrna and her staff have always and myrna is her staff by the way uh <laughs> have uh have covered And profile these fabulous players, and uh, publicize their events, and had reviews uh, of their CDs to let people know that this is alive for such a long period of time. And and it's you know it's a small but hearty band of people that have to stick together because the music is important. It's not, and it's so frustrating when you see how it's been disrespected. By the music industry itself, the you know people were talking about how at the Oscars recently the orchestra was actually two miles away at the Capitol Records studio piped in. I said, well, why are you surprised by that? They don't let musicians at the Grammy Awards. <laughs>
1: it's, it's so cra- it's so crazy. Yeah. Why do they do that?
2: Well, it's because it's it's perceived as non-commercial, and and in point of fact, it is non-commercial in terms of sales, but it's not non-commercial when you look at Attendance. People go uh, to jazz festivals and they go to clubs and they like it when they hear it. It's just that, it, unfortunately, the name jazz uh, became an obscenity for some people. Oh, I don't like jazz, uh, and uh, but they do when they hear it. When they hear it without prejudice, that's what I discovered on Red Eye Radio. I wasn't announcing that this was jazz. I was just playing music that I liked, and as it turns out. A lot of people liked it because they were hearing it for the first time. It wasn't an old record if you've never heard it before. If you've never heard it before, it's a brand new record. And what I personally loved when I was doing Red Eye Radio, both locally here in LA and KBC or nationally, we were on 100 stations, was I loved getting a phone call from an 82-year-old who was hearing Nora Jones for the first time. That's great. And I loved hearing from a 22-year-old who was hearing Benny Goodman for the first time. And to me, I just enjoyed the hell out of that.
0: Well, when when people say the word jazz, they think, oh, that's just one kind of music, one sound, but actually it incorporates so many different styles. And we've always promoted jazz uh, as a big umbrella and it includes Brazilian, um, Afro-Cuban jazz, uh, uh, all the way back to Dixieland, but more modern jazz, Cool jazz. There's there's so many different um, aspects to it.
2: Yeah, no, it's a huge, diverse. Uh, it's a huge, diverse genre of music, but it's very difficult because, you know, the the big uh, the big hearth of television that once featured jazz musicians doesn't anymore. There was, There is no Ed Sullivan show. There's not even a Tonight Show with Johnny Carson who would have Joe Williams on who would bring on Buddy Rich who would uh, you know, let the band...
1: These guys would just bring their charts and they'd sing with the band.
2: That's right. And uh, there's very few people who can get on television anymore. Tony Bennett can get on television. John Pizzarelli. Uh, can go on with Conan O'Brien and occasionally on The Tonight Show with Leno. But there's very, very few jazz musicians who can get on television anymore. And I remember when we were making the movie about Sheldon, talk about Chris Bodie. And Chris Bodie, uh, he, he, he wanted to be in the movie. And we were more than happy to have him. Uh, because he wasn't ninety-two, <laughs> everybody else in the movie was ninety-two. <laughs> but so Chris Bode brought down the single-handedly brought down the average age, the median age of our cast members. But he talked about as being a kid growing up in Oregon, uh, seeing Jack Sheldon on the Merv Griffin Show and Doc Severinsen on the Tonight Show, and that's where the light bulb went off. That that's what he wanted to do and Chris Botti's never met Jack Sheldon. To this day he's never met Jack Sheldon. But he felt he owed a a debt of gratitude because he was one of the two trumpet players that he saw as a little kid that made him want to play the trumpet. But but you know a whole generation of kids are not being introduced to the music through the medium of television anymore. Now granted with the internet with podcasts with webcasts there's everything is available with youtube everything is available but it's in micro audiences now it's not in a mass audience anymore and as a result jazz still has a place in movie scores it still has a place uh in in life but it's not it's not mainstream anymore it's become a boutique product which is sad and like i said earlier i think part of it is uh the end result of jazz's own uh fault it took itself a little too seriously at some levels but then some of it is just the result of the audience being broken down into into tiny component parts, and it's been sort of shunted aside, like uh, polka music.
0: You were talking about uh, the audience, and yet the Playboy Jazz Festival, which is coming up in June, um, attracts sixteen thousand about sixteen thousand uh, people. Times show two. Up, times two. Right, two nights. Yes, twice. So uh, there is an audience. Uh, maybe we don't do big spectacles big giant events but maybe we could maybe we should
2: well, I you know, I, I I would love to see it happen, but uh, it's, it, it's a matter of attraction again. I mean, it's been my experience anyway, that uh, we all, I think everybody believes this intuitively. There's really only two kinds of music, good music and bad music. And there could be good music in any genre. There's good rock and roll and there's bad rock and roll. There's good harmonica music and there's good accordion music. There's uh, I mean, it, there's good or bad. Uh, the problem is is that people have to give it a chance and, or they have to be exposed to it, and the, uh, the, the, the exposure level is down significantly. There was a 10 year period in American history from the late 1930s into the 1940s when jazz was the dominant popular music of America. And, uh, you know, in an irony, uh, it's really kind of Frank Sinatra killed it. <laughs> you know, and in fact, Frank Sinatra wrote the introduction to uh, a history of big band books. And uh and if you I think it's George Simon's big band book. And in it Frank Sinatra's bemoaning the death of the big bands without I think ever realizing that his ascendancy as the vocalist is the star is what supplanted Benny Goodman and 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 Tommy Dorsey and Jimmy Dorsey and and Woody Herman and the the, the the musicians being the stars, they became supporting cast of the vocalists, and it was really Sinatra who turned that around. I mean, you can make an argument maybe Crosby started there too, but, but Sinatra really put the nail in the coffin, and then the vocalists became the star, and the musicians were supporting players.
1: You know, I heard another analysis too that, like, the Beatles killed it, because the Beatles went in and sold all these records with, like, a four-person band, and then they're like, man.
2: Well, the Beatles killed songwriting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and here's why. Now, Lennon and McCartney were genius songwriters, they've written some of the finest songs, I mean brilliant, wonderful material, but what it did was, it created the impression that the key to success was to, for every rock band to write their own songs, and there were a lot of rock bands that followed in the wake who were terrible songwriters, <laughs> <laughs> and what it did was, it kind of pulled the plug. On professional songwriters that by the by the late 1960s Johnny Mercer was out of work Wow! and you know uh, the, the, the Johnny Mercer should have never been out of work uh, so so with all due respect to Lennon and McCartney who were again Titans but there were a lot of bad songs that followed that really the world didn't need but we got them anyway
0: well that's through promotion heavy promotion and almost a cult like following that a lot of uh, listeners had towards those bands that they favored.
2: Yeah, and I think it's always kind of been that way. I mean, if you go back to Battle of the Bands in the '30s, you had Chick Webb versus the King of Swing, and you had you know a Glenn Miller people versus Tommy Dorsey people, and versus Harry James people. So you always had these kind of competitions. Of course, now Battle of the Bands are actually gunfire, usually at the Vegas Strip. Oh, <laughs> that whole East Coast West Coast thing is literally a Battle of the Bands. But so I think that you always had that. But it it, it is amazing to me how uh, narrow-minded, some people can be about their musical preferences. I mean, I have to fight this too, because I admit that I am a total snob about. I mean, I I I have I I find listening to ninety percent of the performers on American Idol almost unbearable, because they and I know why they sing like that. They're all singing uh, every number. Uh, they're 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 spitting up blood, no, you know, no, I, exactly. blowing out their lungs trying to hit these notes. And it's rewarded with spontaneous, you know, tremendous uh, standing ovations every five seconds. And to me, it's 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 eradicated an appreciation for the nuance and subtlety the great great vocalists bring to the party. And uh, you know, it, it's I, I feel it's a loss, but it's it's explosive and it's cinematic and it's eye candy, and therefore it's good for TV.
1: you' I can't agree with you more on that. Hey, Did Mira, you try
2: to agree with me. No, him? I know I I just i you j you're you're right because
1: I feel the same way about you know, I used to where I used to bart I used to be like a singing waiter at Michelli's for a while in Studio City, and somebody would go up there and do like some song, some big song from Wicked or something with a big note at the end, and people would just go nuts. And then you go up there and you sing a nice, you know, jazz ballad or something that's really like, you know, my one and only love or something, and people they don't even understand it. They don't people are looking for immediate gratification and they want well, to see gymnastics they, they don't wanna... also
2: like the drum solo yeah they always like the drum, <laughs> they love solo. The, drum solo. <laughs> the bassist is there plucking away and people are looking at their watch yeah and they're uh, signaling can i have the check please but that drum solo people like the drum solo so you just have to accept it at some level but uh, it's it's you know the 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 technical and artistic accomplishment of of uh of, of soft singing, of quiet singing, is being completely shunted aside. Like, if Peggy Lee were coming out today, would Peggy Lee be able to get airplay or get on television? Uh, I don't know, because Peggy Lee was a singer of, she didn't have a big voice, she just had a great voice, and she had a great ear, and she had a great musical instincts.
1: Well, Nora Jones, I mean, she's kind of, like, done a really nice thing with what you know,
2: yeah, that's true. I mean, there's going to be exceptions, but yeah, it's but not. You, you, the problem is we can all name them quickly and agree on them. There's one. There's one. <laughs> there's a couple others. Like you know, I'm an enormous partisan of Tierney Sutton, who's not only brilliantly exactly. talented but easy on the eyes. And it's not that many years ago that Tierney Sutton would have been a TV star. T- Tierney Sutton would have been. A, why wouldn't you put a tall, attractive blonde who can sing like an angel on television?
1: We should ask Mirna Tierney to do the 19th of uh, May.
0: Oh, sure, sure. We have We have the, ja- the
1: Jazz Scene 25th year anniversary celebration. It's going to be at the JW Marriott Ritz-Carlton in the mixing room. And we're totally taking all the furniture out, sound gear, renting a piano, 24 by 36 stage. And we have some great, amazing, amazing artists that are going to perform that day. It's going to be from noon to 10 p.m. and it's 25 bucks for 25 years. All proceeds go in to support the L.A. Jazz-C newspaper. Mirna, you want to talk about some of the guests we have? And
0: oh, absolutely! And we're just beginning to line up people. Um, we're asking people to perform um, short sets. You know, we don't—we're uh, not going to wear anybody out, but we will have a, a wonderful lineup of varied, exciting music. Uh, some of the people that we have coming up will be. Um, Patrick Tuzelino, Tony Russell, Gina Saputo, The No Vacancy Orchestra, John Prue, Barry Zweig, The Leftover Cuties, who are uh, on the February cover, Katie Thoreau, Rob Kyle, Alex Alex Budman, Tom Luer, Lyman Medeiros, Joe Bagg, Organ Trio, and many, many more to come.
1: Many more to come. It's going to be exciting. Yes. And hopefully... Doug, I know you're going to try and make it out, but hopefully Doug McIntyre is able to stop by and say a few words. We're hoping that, you know, I know you I've
2: you're... never said a few words in my life. I, I love it. I've i said too many words. I was so
1: nervous. I'm like, what am I going to say? He's going to be here. Uh, you,
0: you don't have to worry about that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, we will... Um, I, I think I want to remind people that 25 years, it seems like a long time, but on the other hand, it just whizzed by. And we're getting ready for, well, maybe another 25 years. The paper is um, survived nicely, but we need a little help now. We need more um, audience, uh, always more audience. But uh, we have a lot of surprises coming up. We have all kinds of good ideas for the paper. I think people will love the Marriott Hotel. It is just the most glamorous, beautiful, wonderful place to have a, a 25th celebration. Uh, surrounded by the best of los angeles basically la live and so i I hope a lot of people will show up and and help us
2: well it sounds like a great event and it's uh it's a great accomplishment so that's uh may 19th sunday may 19th sunday
1: may 19th all day from noon to 10 p.m you buy a ticket you're there all day you can come in and out we're going to do wristbands there's going to be food. It's going to be just awesome. I
0: understand Dave Damiani is even going to be there. Oh, Dave, is. he's going to be, oh, well, yeah, yeah. He's, he's got to be there, yeah. Dave has is, is been a fantastic um, helper. He's been helping uh, organize this uh, celebration, and Dave is, um, he's a pistol. You can't stop him. He's going to be uh, just fabulous, fabulous. He's with his new CD and uh, No Vacancy Orchestra, he's gonna be great can't miss him
1: hopefully you guys can make it out April 3rd we're gonna be at the Catalina Jazz Club it's a Wednesday night for the CD release party watch what happens Lyman if you're listening in Palm Springs or Palm Beach Uh, it's gonna be a big night for us man Um, Steve Tyrell hopefully comes out and uh, maybe says a few words become pretty friendly with Steve and he's been a great supporter as well along with Kevin Winard who's gonna be playing drums that night um, we're real excited for the event. It's gonna be just fantastic. An amazing band. Andy Langham, Tom Lohr, Alex Budman, Javier Gonzalez, John Bradley, all the young guys in jazz. I don't think anybody in the band is over forty, so it's pretty pretty awesome to get all those young guys out there. It's just you know, we got Barry Zwag as the as the only geezer on the band. <laughs> Love you, Barry. <laughs>
2: He'll be hearing from Barry's attorneys <laughs> shortly. Dead. Barry is very litigious,
1: <laughs> but Barry really has the has the heart and soul of a, of a young guy. He's such a great great guy. So, and he played on the CD, and it's going to be great.
0: He's a sweetheart. sweetheart. Barry is just a sweetheart. A lot of there's so many great musicians here in LA, and we really need to support them, and that's what we that's what we're um, aiming to do
1: um you're gonna be able to buy tickets in advance on for the um for the may 19th event online at LAJazzScene.net. dot net and um there's also a number you can call is it on there mari yes it what, what is. is. The, it, what is the phone number let me uh let me see we're gonna do advanced sales for twenty five bucks uh it's eight one eight five eight four six eight three one that's eight one eight five eight four six eight three one to get you know it's gonna probably sell out so hopefully you guys get your advanced tickets.
2: And L.A. has a very big airport, so you can come in from anywhere in the world. There we go. They can accommodate all kinds of planes.
1: Doug, is your, is your wife is doing a play this
2: weekend? She is this uh, Friday and Saturday, as in tomorrow and Saturday night. It's called "A Heap of Living by Elliot Schoenman, who's the executive producer of The Bill Cosby Show uh, and Home Improvements. And he wrote the pl- piece, and she's doing two nights only. Great cast. Didi Kahn, who was in the original uh, Grease with uh, John Travolta. She played Frenchie, and uh, and uh, Larry Pressman is a wonderful cast. So, uh, two nights on that's where I'm going to be spending my weekend.
1: There in that film festival sounds great. You were the talking the
2: Wayne about. Fetterman, the second annual Wayne Fetterman International Film Festival.
1: I love the idea, the way he set that up. I was listening today.
2: It's it's a wonderful we a wonderful event. We went last year. Wayne Fetterman is a very funny fellow, and uh, he rented last year the silent movie theater on Fairfax which is a local leg- landmark in LA and created the Wayne Fetterman International Film Festival with the con- concept of having uh, stand-up comics choose their favorite films and then introduce the- it doesn't have to be a comedy but introduce the film and then uh, do a and a with the audience afterwards and he had a wonderful lineup last year you know, Gary Shandling and a whole bunch of folks uh, picked their films and D- uh, Kevin Pollock happened to choose The In-Laws with uh, Ellen Arkin and Peter Falk, which my wife was in. And uh, so uh, Wayne said, you th- would, would Penny want to come down? And Your do wife the- was in
1: The Original In-Laws? Yeah, she's
2: in The Original In-Laws. She plays the the bride in The In-Laws. Wow. And, uh, and so so uh, we, it was wonderful seeing the movie because it is a favorite of mine. In fact, I, the first time I saw my wife was at the Manhasset Theater on Long Island. At, at, in 1979 when The In-Laws came
1: Serpentine, out. Serpentine, Serpentine.
2: Right, it's a brilliant <laughs> film. Uh, and so she uh, she went down, we, we went to the, to the Wayne Fetterman International Film Festival, and it was wonderful seeing the picture with an audience because it, it had been 30 years since we had seen that picture with an audience. And it really, I mean, it is a tour de force film. It really is. I mean, of uh, Alan Arkin and Peter Falk are just so brilliant together in that movie. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. And this year, it's Sarah Silverman and uh, Dana Gould and a whole bunch of top comics picking their favorite pictures, and uh, it, it's just—it's a really great kind of event. It's really a fun L.A. event. Now,
1: if you had a movie to pick for your movie, what would it be?
2: Well, I, I would. My the top of my list would be uh, the producers, the original producers with Zero Mostel and Alan uh, and uh, um, Gene Wilder. Gene Wilder. Uh, a Night at the Opera with the Marx Brothers, um, Network with Patti Chayefsky, Patti Chayefsky's Network, which I think is one of the a piece of literature that just happened to land on film. Uh, those three come to mind immediately, uh, and I'd I'd have to think about if I was making my sort of desert island film list. I I would have to think beyond that. I mean, it's always easier for me to do uh, CDs or albums because then. You know that changes constantly too, but uh, with movies I'd have to put more thought into it, but definitely those films would be high in the list and the in-laws would have been on the list the in-laws definitely would have been on the list as a, as a you know the years I spent as a comedy writer uh, there's not a comedy writer that I've ever worked with that doesn't know every line of dialogue from the in-laws
1: Peter Falk is so hysterical
2: he's brilliant in it and so is Arkin they're brilliant together okay. it's it's one of the great team one of the great pairings in fact when they did the remake of that picture a few years back, which was a really frankly a terrible why idea why
1: would they do why did they do well
2: that? because that's why they do everything They figured the plot points have already been settled they know the plot works so it's casting uh they cast michael douglas and uh and albert brooks uh to play the leads and uh my wife's name is penny pizer the the uh they named the dentist uh, that Albert Brooks played uh, Jerry Pizer in the movie. So, uh, and Penny said, "Well, that's nice, but I, I would have appreciated a walk-on <laughs> or something, and make a make a healthcare payment."
1: Yeah, no kidding, right?
2: Make <laughs> <laughs> like a pension and health payment for for SAG. Uh, so, but 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 you know, that's that's what they do. I mean, it's a, a lot of remakes are made either to exploit on the fondness that people have for the original, or because frankly, they just know that, well, we know the basic plot works because it worked the last time, so you can just modernize it, but it's rarely a good idea to do a remake.
1: Yeah, I know, no no doubt.
2: Although Albert is, you know, one of the comedy gods.
1: You know what I just picked up? I picked up the KABC 790 app on my iPhone.
2: Uh, Did you? And let me tell you,
1: that's great. You know, you can listen to it at the gym. It's like, it's perfect.
2: Well, that's if you go
1: to the gym. If you go to the gym, which I don't go very often. When I go, I listen to KABC. Well, there you go. And, um let's talk about where and where can people get on um, the trying to get good documentary
2: amazon.com you can go Amazon. to the website trying to get good.com but you it's that's eventually and and you should go there uh, for a little background on the film but uh and all the people in it a wonderful cast of people of far too many of whom have since left us since we completed production uh, or you can just go to amazon.com and it's available on DVD and I know folks want to uh, rented on Netflix, but it's not available on Netflix at this time, and it won't be until we get back to dollar zero. So I figure by about twenty sixty, uh, <laughs> it ought to be. It ought to be on Netflix.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, like to thank our special guest today, Mr. Doug McIntyre, for coming in. We appreciate you, Doug, so much.
2: It has been a pleasure. Do you validate parking? We do. We validate red. parking,
1: and um, you can listen to Doug every morning, McIntyre in the morning, KABC seven ninety. It's um. 6 to 9 five, five, to ten, 5 to 5 to 9 5, five, to, five, to, nine, nine, five to 9 and nine.
2: then you can uh, listen to us globally, globally at kbc.com
1: and you can also get the app on the iPhone or you could read a you Doug's read, column that's um, right LA Daily News um, every Wednesday and Saturday Sunday, Sunday every Wednesday and, and Wednesday's
2: and Sunday. daily news.com
1: and awesome column
2: thank you sir mirna
1: thank you so much and uh, you know what? I'm going to self promote the CD and play the title it's track. It's
2: called Watch What Happens. Watch I'm going to be Happens. listening to it on the way home. Thank you so much.
1: I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much, everybody. And Thank we're you. looking forward to seeing you on May 19th at the L.A. Jazz Scene 25th year anniversary. And pick up a copy of the L.A. Jazz Scene. John Prue is on the cover in tomorrow. March.
2: Tomorrow. Great, great,
1: great piano player singer. All over town tomorrow. All over town tomorrow.
2: Wonderful scat singer, too.
1: Thank you. Great. Take care. Let someone start believing in you. Let him hold out his hand. Let him touch you and watch what happens. Want someone who can look in your eyes and see into your heart. Let him find you and watch what happens. Go. No, I won't believe your heart is cold. Maybe afraid to be broken again. I say, I'll let someone with a deep love to give. Give that deep love to you. And what magic you see, I'll let someone give his heart. Someone who cares like me again I say let someone with a deep love to give give that deep love to you and what magic you'll see let someone give his heart someone who cares like me someone who cares like me someone